on episode eight of the Game Developers Podcast Out of Play area, we welcome our first audio designer, Kristen Quinn. We go in on her extensive experience where she's worked on games, including Condemned, Fable 2 and 3, Fear, Sunset Overdrive, and more. And we go deep on how she got into the industry. Spoiler, it has something to do with always being in an arcade. We talk about building equitable hiring practices, we also discuss what it means for her to be an effective director at Polyarch Games in Seattle. We also dive into ways to keep your team connected while working remotely. We also then talk about what it's like transitioning from larger teams to a much smaller team and more. Please welcome, coming to us from the Pacific Northwest, the marvelous Kristen Quinn. Let's start the show. Bienvenido, bienvenue, welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. Ooh, I didn't know you had reptiles. What do you have? We have a panther chameleon, and then we have a juvenile bearded dragon. I know bearded dragons, but I don't know the different subspecies of bearded dragons. Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of morphs on the bearded dragons. Chameleon we started with, which is ironic because chameleon care is way more complex than most other reptiles, I feel like. So it's interesting that we we started hard and then we kind of went back to the reptile that we probably should have started with. (laughs) Well, there's something to be said for that, right? Like, start the game on hard mode, and then medium and easy are, like, trivial. I got this. Yeah, Yeah. I got this. Yeah. That's so cool. What are their names? Our chameleon is named Peach, and then our bearded dragon is named Waffle. Peach and Waffle. I'm curious if those are inspired from any characters or... They're not really, like, the bearded dragons kind of lay really flat. They kind of, like, pancake, as I would say it, but, like... We kind of went with Waffle. So we had a cat named Atlas that was named after the guide in Bioshock was where I had gotten his name from. And then we have a dog named Link. All right. Link is obviously a Zelda reference. I think so. My wife brought the dog to the relationship, so I would have to ask her. But in my mind, that is true. (laughs) (laughs) That, That was a sign. She gets it. How were you with the snowfall last weekend? We were pretty great, actually, because I'm a part of this field recording group on Slack where we do a bunch of crowdsourced libraries. And one of the libraries they're doing right now is Outdoor Footsteps. And so I piled on all my recording gear and I headed out and I'm sure I looked crazy walking and running in place in front of my house really early in the morning before everyone was getting up so I could get some snow footsteps in my library. I do love the sound of snow footsteps. Yeah, it's a very particular sound, right? And we were lucky because we had salted and we'd kind of shoveled a path the day before. And so like that area had started to ice over and was really hard and crunchy sounding from being thinner. And so then I got to do just normal packed snow. I got to do like half calf deep snow. And then we got to do like more kind of crunchy, harder like ice surface. So it was a pretty cool variety of stuff. Yeah. Kirsten I am so happy that you took this. You are the first audio designer on the show, first audio director on the show, and I have a huge profound love and respect of speaking with audio designers, audio creators. 
because there are so many levels to talking about sound and capturing sound and mimicking what that sounds like. So I always have a great time speaking with audio developers. I'm so excited to just be talking about capturing footsteps in snow. It's awesome. Totally. It kind of takes me back home a little bit. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It's like really always a pleasure to get to hang out with fellow game devs and talk shop and talk about games because, you know. We definitely don't get to do enough in the pandemic. I feel like, yeah, outside of the normal work hours, I can't be in a meeting the same way I can be on the floor to keep talking about game dev. So this is definitely giving me a much needed outlet to even kind of spread outside of my own studio, right, at, at EA. Yeah, it's so true. There's this aspect of like relationship building that happens just hanging out and getting to chat during lunches and like bonding and building those relationships with people at work that I think is really important. And it's been a real interesting new challenge to figure out how to continue doing that through the pandemic. And as someone who's kind of, I've worked offsite for a big chunk of my career. So it's kind of familiar with this work setup, but I'm always looking for like new ways. Like when you bring on a new person onto the team, how do you like introduce them and start getting them integrated in with the team in the same ways where they get to bond and make friends and hang out and just build those relationships up in a positive way? Yeah, that's super interesting. I myself have onboarded at EA completely virtually, right? It was kind of my biggest anxiety was, holy cow, you know, I'm in this role where I need to be deep in the trenches and hands-on with so many different teams and people. How is that going to happen, right? How am I going to build those relationships virtually? And it has easily taken 50% of my time, making time, getting in people's calendars, hitting them up on Slack, getting Zoom time to just build that rapport, right? Getting comfortable, asking about how they're doing, where they're coming from, what's going on, showing interest in what they're doing mm-hmm. and being okay with asking for help, right? I, I love playing the FNG card, right? To be like, hey, I'm new around here. I don't know about anything. Please teach me. Yeah, I'm like that no matter how long I've been in a company, but yeah, I hear you. (laughs) (laughs) It's always great. It's always great to get to work with people and see how they work and see what their job entails and learn from them. Because, you know, as an audio designer, I feel like audio kind of touches everything. Oh, it totally does. It's always been one of my goals to like just, you know be in with everybody and try and understand like how they work and how they're building things and just build that relationship. So we're kind of building things together. I love games for that reason. It's this true interdisciplinary like collaboration. So like you're working with all kinds of different people who think differently, who are doing completely different things and then building something together. That's such an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know where I'm stealing this from, but I'm definitely stealing it from somewhere where it's like, The fact that a game, let alone all the ones that get made around the world year to year, gets made and created and put in a box or put in the cloud and published is nothing short of a small miracle each and every time. Yeah, it's amazing. And I I keep thinking, you know, like the longer I do it, the more I just realize what I don't know. 
because I I'm just like the more senior I've gotten in my career and the and the longer I've been making games, it's just so true that I'm just learning everything I don't know about game development. But that's awesome because it means it keeps me engaged and keeps me interested. And like I'm so in love with games and like I grew up in an arcade, so I'm just like so fascinated even as a child like how games work and understanding them so it's so cool to to get to work with everybody else and game designers and engineers and like learn how they make all this stuff how their portion of this stuff happened you know when you say you grew up in an arcade is that like figuratively grew up in an arcade like you were hanging out there all the time or did you like parents own an arcade my parents were really into bowling which had arcades so and they had league five nights a week when i was a kid and so i literally spent five nights a week in an arcade growing up that is heaven i hope you had like the hookup to not have to put in quarters or you had the bucket of coins or something you just gotta get good Ah, good. (laughs) You just gotta get good, Kristen. You're talking. You're talking my language, and I know since you work at Polyarch, you have to be good friends with my good friend Chris Barasa, who who has taught me to play fighting games, not for fun, but for the sheer enjoyment of defeating the person across from you. Yeah, Chris is amazing, and I (laughs) I love working with him. I was at Riot right before joining Polyarch, and I worked on Mm -hmm. their their card game. So I was the lead on Legends of Runeterra and eventually promoted to an audio director position. But when I joined Polyarch, he was so stoked on that game because he's really into card games. And so we played it a lot, and I'm like, he's like stomping me. (laughs) I'm just like, he's such a good designer. He's so good at what he does, and he's a great asset to any team. And it's so exciting to see what's going to come out of what you guys are working on next, right? I, I was a big fan of Moss and the, the PSVR is just the easiest headset of all because it's kind of hooked into my console, right? I don't need to do too much to get going. And Quill is such a lovable character. I'd love to know more about how you guys operate at Polyarch. How is it being an audio director over there? Doug put me on in the first episode. He put me onto this wonderful article, super thought-provoking, a lot of gems in there for like improving the way we bring in and vet candidates, right? Mm-hmm. It was kind of like long overdue, to be fair, when I read that thing. Yeah, there's one other audio director at the studio, Stephen Hottie, who is a total gem and just pure joy to work with. And so we've been looking for an additional candidate to join the team. And a lot of that process has been evaluating and looking at hiring practices and what that's looked like at other studios, as well as how would we want to change it to build a more equitable, even experience for all candidates who are applying. And one of the things we looked at and thought a lot about, and Stephen was really instrumental in driving this, was audio people, we love our gear. We love our libraries. We love our gear. We love all the plugins and all the software. But when you're bringing in a new candidate, there really is a benefit to having been in the industry for time and having invested in a lot of gear and a lot of equipment. And so in order to like create a more equitable experience for people who maybe haven't had the opportunity to acquire all of that gear, we reached out and partnered with Pro Sound Effects and worked with their licensing manager, Jeremy, over there to basically get a limited 
license general purpose sound effects library that anybody who was applying could then have a temporary license to use. And so that basically meant everybody had access to the same source material and content to design with. Another thing we looked at was creating like even use across plugins and things that people were going to use to be able to design with. And so we requested that people were allowed to use a DAW of their choice and only use stock plugins or Mm. plugins that had demos available. And like, as we were evaluating, trying to improve the process and really try and look at like, how can we like create a more even playing field that doesn't favor like economic privilege? We would ideally in a perfect world, I think, do away with the testing process, but we haven't figured out a way to do that. We realize it's like an imperfect system and we hopefully are making just steps towards improvement. And we continually want to reevaluate that and look at continuing to hopefully take steps in the right direction towards creating more equitable hiring practices. One of the things that we also did was we provided all of our questions and what the interview phases and process was going to look like upfront. So we would take all the questions we were going to ask in the audio interview and hand it to the candidate like way ahead of time before that we actually had the audio interview scheduled. What interviews do is they test how well people really think on their feet and Mm -hmm. like can process information and recall and tell and form a story under really high stress, high pressure circumstances. And so we wanted to allow an environment where people felt more comfortable, were able to put more thought into how they would want to answer their questions. And so it didn't favor someone who is extremely good in those circumstances, because we don't think that's necessarily a test of how great you're going to be at performing your job on a daily basis. We have a lot of people who need to think about things and spend time processing things. And we think that's a totally okay and viable way to work. And so we wanted to create an interviewing environment that allowed for both types of thinking and how people operate. That's awesome. To your point where you can get very different kinds of people and you won't really be able to see if they're capable of doing the job in the actual workplace, right? And and the way that traditional interviews are done are super poor about simulating the real Mm -hmm. work environment, right? And so this is extremely forward-facing and progressive just because I can't tell you a single interview where I knew what I was gonna get asked. Well, okay, let me take a step back. I will admit that Amazon has a system like this in place, right? Where they work with you well in advance to walk you through the things they're looking for and the types of questions you're going to get asked. And Mm -hmm. that was the first time where I was given a chance to prepare and bring in notes or bring in a tablet or bring in a laptop and knew well in advance the types of things they were looking for. And that was a game changer for me, right? And I kind of looked at it, looking back on the game industry and looking at big tech to be like, wow, they have it figured out, or at least in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Why are game studios so beholden to their like ritual hazing type of thing, right? And so I'm super happy to see that you guys are challenging the mold, right? And, and doing something that works better for you. And I'm curious, have you seen positive feedback as a result? A hundred percent. We've had so many people reach out to us after the fact, thanking us for being so thoughtful about our approach and really appreciating the amount of 
thought that went into it. I mean, part of the like audio test is like everybody tests. Like it really mm-hmm. is the best identifier for how someone's work is going to fit with your mm-hmm. studio or the project that you're on. With that said, like our industry is known for crunching and we also view testing as sometimes we're asking people to do work outside of their full-time job. And then that test is like two weeks worth of work or a week worth of work. And so we deliberately shortened our tests to be two beats in a video up against sounds that had already been designed so that we could see how their content would sit up against content we had crafted. And we deliberately tried to make our test like only a day's worth of work because we know that family and life outside of work is really important and we really value work-life balance and we don't want to crunch people before they even get into Mm -hmm. the door. And so we're really putting a lot of energy and effort into trying to solve a really hard problem that honestly the industry hasn't solved yet yeah a lot of studios have good intentions and work really hard and i think there are studios that do a really good job of caring about work-life balance and Mm -hmm. that being a part of their culture that they're constantly trying to work to improve it and to make sure that they are building their studio in a sustainable way where we're not going to burn out employees and game devs right yeah, it's so cool. I, I think back to my experiences with some tests, right? And says, hey, hey, you know, I'm given a set time box where it's like, hey, you have a week or in, in extreme cases, you have two weeks. And it's so disheartening to throw all the free time you can into something and then it doesn't even get you a phone call or something like that, mm-hmm. right? That's so disheartening. And to go back to some things you touched on, right, is privilege and access to a library or assets from a company because you were good about packaging up things you worked on, proprietary things you worked on, right, and taking them with you or something like that. So I really love what you guys set up to create an even footing, which is if everything is equal, what can you give us, right? And so just a matter of putting everybody at the same starting line, I think is something very important that I want listeners to let that sit with them a bit. And you're already saying that it's already yielding good results. We've been actively hiring. And Mm. so we've been asking candidates for feedback towards the end of their interview process. And Again, we've had people who've reached out just appreciating how thoughtful it was and that they had never really gone through an experience like that, which makes me feel good since we're getting positive feedback. And we always want all types of feedback, right? Mm. Like we want to know how we're doing and people involved in the process are the best people to give us that feedback. How can we learn? How can we grow and expand upon what we're already doing? I'm always open and looking for good ideas around, you know, how to how to make it better. I didn't even get to ask you, what are you sipping on? Oh, I am drinking a rooibos tea called Honey Pot with a splash of half and half in it. Yeah, I see the little creamy goodness in there. Oh, yeah, it's good. I will cheers your tea. I have my little, it's a green tea. Uh, I think it read on the label, it's like North African mint and always like, some type of herbal kick to it, right? Whether it's mint or cinnamon or something like that. So cheers to your Roy boss. Yeah, cheers. I leave it open to people. Hey, whatever you want to drink, let me know so that we can be on the same wavelength with each other. And 
I'm particularly delighted when people hit me off with tea, right? Because it feels like I'm treating myself gently mm-hmm. and I can do some other things with the rest of my day. Yeah, that's great. Especially like, you know, mid-afternoon on a Sunday. So <laughs> yes. thank you for the tea. Interesting thing with audio designers and creators, from my experience, are that you guys have this fantastic audio booth that tends to be a cave with no light, no natural light coming in, that is a great refuge for designers on the floor who need to go in and complain about things or talk about how their design got ripped apart or something like this. But what I found so interesting with you, Kristen, is that you've always been remote. Not always. I started out at Monolith and I was on site working at Monolith for four years. I was on campus at Microsoft while I worked at Microsoft, but the majority of the time I was working with remote developers. That's what it was. Usually across the pond because I worked with the the Lionhead studio for a, a while on a lot of the Fable games. And then I worked on site at Riot for two years and then I moved back to Seattle and worked in a remote office for two years. And then I joined Polyarch and I was on site until pandemic hit. But I would say like I have been off site from developers for probably a little over half my career. There is something magical about being on site with teams. You know, again, as we talk about like, how do you form those relationships and reach out and get people to know you and trust you and like collaborate with you, right? Yeah. So since my history working in publishing for so long and working remote, I had gained a lot of experience working offsite. Do you have any tricks or tips for those of us that are still trying to figure this out? How do we do remote work Mm -hmm. and still be as connected as possible? Mm -hmm. I think my number one thing is that I've been trying to do with every new hire that we bring in is I just reach out to them and be like, hey, would you do a one-on-one virtual lunch with me and like hang out and chat? And I'm still trying to get that like hang out face-to-face time, even if it's not in person. I know we're all getting pretty fatigued mm-hmm. being on uh, Zoom all the time or Hangouts or whatever technology you're using for your conferencing. But finding ways to still do fun things, you know, and get that social time in. Like, I've been doing some, like, remote gaming with people and being like, hey, let's jump in and play a game of Among Us or, you know, like, let's do something cool quick and accessible and fun you know how good are you at among us as a crewmate or an imposter (laughs) i'm still pretty new to it actually my friend brian higa had like recommended it i think for halloween and that was like my first time playing it and i was like oh i'm so into this because it feels kind of like playing one night werewolf have you played that like that was fun i played werewolf yeah i guess one night is a variation yeah that short condensed version the games are usually just fast but the game still the setting takes place over a night but your time to play the game is very fast so I really love board games so I'm just finding ways to still try and play remote board games I like ran a dread game it's a horror themed tabletop game but instead of rolling dice like you typically do you play with jenga towers okay and so i got everybody remotely in their household to buy a jenga tower and i just slightly altered the rules so that everyone kind of had the same level of tension going in their towers Mm. and so we played that remote and that was really fun i do appreciate any time i can reuse an old game in a different way for a new game i love that 
yeah, especially Jenga. Right? Jenga's yeah. fun. Well, it, it fits the theme because like horror tabletop is like, how do you build tension? You know, mm-hmm. and like the Jenga tower kind of naturally does that. So it really, it works so well as a rule set for that game. That's awesome. I do recall the beauty of having mechanisms as part of an onboarding plan of some sort, right? Where you are tasked to set up lunch with your boss, your skip level, your teammates, whatever departments you're working with, you know, lead designers, all the leads, things like that. I I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is for someone coming in to, you know, hey, here's here's kind of your org chart and here's a team and you meet people, but especially virtually, right? To be a forcing function for leads and directors who Mm -hmm. are always busy, (laughs) that something is on their calendar, forcing them to reach out and connect and book time, right? Or Mm -hmm. at least kind of pinging them to ping the new hire to be like, hey, anytime this week, let's link up, right? And and poke me for tips and insights. And having the insight of fresh blood, right? Like fresh eyes is so valuable. So oh, valuable right. in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Or fresh ears. <laughs> Touche in the audio realm. No, totally. The team, we do a lot of play tests together. You know, and that's mm, awesome because we can like important. set up a Discord server, all jump on, someone's streaming, like you can just have an open conversation. It's that like, hey, come up to my desk, let me show you something. You know, mm-hmm. it's that conversation that you get in the office. I love walking on the floor and just like looking over people's shoulders, being like, What are you working on? Oh, I miss that so much. Yeah, like, oh, I'm yeah. gonna have to make sounds to that. I didn't know about that. Talk to me about that. So I think there's still ways to create that experience being remote. But again, I think you have to put in a lot of effort to like maintain it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. As a recent new hire, I can attest to the effort it takes to get in front of people. And Mm -hmm. what I'm advocating for is is on the other end, right? To be like, hey, there's a lot more of you than there is of me, right? And Mm -hmm. so it'd be nice that the new blood is a priority for the team to train, to educate, to share knowledge with as much as can be. Mm -hmm. I also think we benefit being really like a smaller team. Oh, yeah. How big are you guys? I think we just hit like 33, maybe. That's a sweet spot. Yeah. It's the first time I've ever been in an independent smaller studio. Mm. I've typically been at much larger companies, so it's very different. And I've had to learn how to like evolve and adapt to working in more of an indie environment. And Mm -hmm. of course, the Polyarch team is phenomenal. And the majority of those people come from AAA. So the bar and the expectations are still really high. That feels the same. You know, I appreciate the quality bar, but like I appreciate being able to be scrappy and mm-hmm. the close knitness of the team and how we work. And it feels really like a really cool open feedback culture, which is pretty similar coming from Riot. Riot, while huge, right? Massive company still has a really open feedback culture, which is one of the things that I loved about Riot. And so I've appreciated that coming into Polyarch and working with this smaller team. I'd love to pick your brain on the mindset change, or if any, when you come from larger quadruple A or triple A development to smaller team, right? I definitely see how you guys put out triple A quality titles at a good price, I'll add, (laughs) at a great price. What have you witnessed as big differences, right? Mm -hmm. Going from one to the other. In the audio space, I would Mm -hmm. say it feels a lot like resources, right? I'm used to being able to 
higher up more widely or having more libraries and more infrastructure, right? And so I would say that has been an adjustment. It's been great for me to adapt to learning how to work within limitations. I actually think that's an amazing function for pushing creativity. You'll hear people say this, that like creative conversations in the audio world often turn into conversations about gear and plugins, right? Um, (laughs) Really? I didn't know about this. Yeah, yeah. And so limitations can be healthy and like they can be an amazing thing to push creativity and to push quality or to push doing something that maybe you wouldn't have thought to do in a particular way. And I've always had a cave, as you said, that had people coming in, sitting on my chairs being like, oh, I just needed to get off the floor for a bit. Right. I love being that office. I love hanging out with people and being a a place that people can come and like de-stress if they need to de-stress or like go walk and get a cup of coffee. That's great. But those rooms are expensive. So, you know, at Polyarch, we tend to sit on the floor and we work on headphones. I don't at home. That's actually been one nice thing about working from home is like, oh, I get my like nice speakers back. But there's a real benefit to actually working on the floor with people too and being mm-hmm. closer to the team and being in the peripheral vision of people, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you get to see more. You don't get that like out of sight, out of mind kind of sensation that I think can happen with audio people when they go and cave dwell, yes. which don't don't get me wrong. I love a balance of cave dwelling. and <laughs> But I just think it's also been about coverage first. If I don't have as many resources or can't go as wide on a project, then I'm historically used to just being able to pull emergency stress valves. And that's not to say we won't do that. It's just the mentality shift that I've made of like coverage comes first over polish and really quality. Whereas historically, I think in AAA studios, I would have gone deeper on a particular system that we thought was really important until it was perfect and really pick and choose those like systems that you want to heavily invest in. And I'm doing that a little less now. I'm still prioritizing here the things that I think are really important and need to be standout. And those probably will be the things that we're okay spending more time on. But I do think it's been about like, well, I want to go fix this thing. And historically, I would have just gone and fixed that thing, but I'm not going to yet because I just want to make sure that everything has coverage first. That's an interesting dynamic that I haven't heard somebody express is the trade-off of coverage, right? So going wide versus depth and going deep. I can attest to the love and attention that a first level gets or an intro encounter or any 30, first 30% of the game or first year or two of development, right? Where we go really deep on the game. And the last year or two, then it's a matter of like, holy crap, we still got 60, 70% of the game left. Let's go, you know, shotgun and, and try to cover as much as we can, right? But from what I've seen, Kristen, it does tend to happen kind of in waterfall style, right? Like fill up your first bucket, then the next bucket, then the next bucket. And okay. so it's interesting to hear this kind of going wide and worrying about coverage and worrying about making sure everything's got something mm-hmm. and then being able to kind of go back and, mm-hmm. and polish and fine tune and show love. But you have to be selective. Yeah, and I think we will. And we've built a schedule really focused around 
what are those important things, we're going to deliberately spend more time there. It is just a little different. You know, I think I was a bit spoiled at Microsoft because I was typically working with external developers. So we mm-hmm. were brought on to just help support or pick a system and we're going to support that system. So my job basically was to go deep, right? And mm-hmm. that's, that's not to say that was always true because my Microsoft job was really dynamic in terms of like what my role was from project to project, depending on what the developer had. Sometimes the developer had one audio guy, right? Like that was Lionhead because they had Rush Shaw, who's an amazing, amazing composer, but he did all of Fable 1 himself, right? Wow. And so then for Fable 2, they brought on me and another contractor at Microsoft, and we basically then became kind of supporting all the sound effects for Fable 2. And then for Fable 3, like I got promoted and brought on full time at Microsoft and became the audio lead or sound supervisor. But we were doing all the sound effects and we were working with outsourcing teams and we were working with internal sound designers that we had at Microsoft. But basically we were fully supporting that game. But then other games, like I got to work with the Insomniac guys. They're phenomenal, amazing guys down there. Was that Sunset Overdrive? That was Sunset Overdrive. That was the project I got to meet my wife on also. So, Kristen, I just finished having an interview with another former colleague, Mei Ling, and she told me the same thing where she met her partner on the job. And I find these tales so beautiful and and I love hearing more. Yeah. Jesse, my wife, was a producer at Microsoft. I was already on Sunset Overdrive. I worked in a central media group at Microsoft and we kind of had artists, narrative, audio, like all together. And we were just kind of the central creative team that helped support different projects based on their needs. I've heard people throw around the term insourcing. Yeah. And Microsoft has a team of like mercenaries, you know, they're they're ready and available. As soon as as your project is ready, we got them. Yeah. So we were just there to help support the projects. And she was a producer and she had been working on Gears Award Judgment at the time and then got brought over onto Sunset Overdrive to become a senior producer at the time on that project. And so she was in a core publishing team that worked on Mm -hmm. all the big AAA titles in the publishing group at Microsoft. And so that was our first introduction to one another was her coming in as the new producer on the project. And we ended up at this women in game development meetup. And we had a friend who was an art director on the project at the time who we were both sitting near her because we were both friends with her. And somehow Magic the Gathering came up and Jessie was like, oh, you're into Magic the Gathering? I'm into Magic the Gathering. And so she basically wrote up her entire Magic the Gathering schedule. We have this place called Cafe Mox. Oh, yeah. Mox Boarding House in Ballard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. That was very close to my house at the time. So I used to walk down there all the time. And she played in, I think, a group there called the Lady Planeswalker Society group. So it was like for introducing new players. It was this really positive group that was really trying to be inclusive and get more people into playing magic in a like not so intimidating Friday night magic kind of style environment, right? I got to take a moment because my wife would appreciate if I plug her undying love of Magic the Gathering and the way that her 
elvish ears shoot up as soon as somebody mentions mtg in any capacity right so this will be great i can't wait for her to listen to this nice yeah magic Mm -hmm. basically was how my wife and i started hanging out after we got introduced to one another it's a very romantic game magic the gathering Ah, i I did not know this i did not know this now i will look at magic through a very different lens so that's cool it's like yeah you guys met through work, but it was your shared interests outside of work that then kind of like spawned off into a relationship. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's nice also having someone who also understands what's required of our job sometimes. And sometimes we work hard. And at least at the time when you have to put sure. in extra hours, sometimes that's okay. I try not to do that anymore. I try and keep my work life balance. Yeah, I, I recognize that the work life balance is my responsibility. I want you to repeat that one more time for the listeners out there. Because yeah. in my experience, a game company, a studio, a team will gladly take everything you're willing to give them. They will never say no. And some managers and leads I've had are very empathetic people that will call out and be like, yo, John, I'll take it, but let me know that you're fine kind of thing. So please repeat what you just said. Yeah. My work-life balance is my responsibility. Amen. It was very hard to learn that. Right. I think when I was starting out, I was just really hungry. I just wanted Mm. to do whatever I could. I was just excited to be there. I wanted to work as hard as I could to just get good and learn. And heck yeah. But once I got in, you know, I kept working like that. It didn't stop. (laughs) Right. And it wasn't actually until I had a pretty gnarly back injury. I ended up rupturing a disc in my back and tearing the disc above it and kind of lost my ability to walk for many months. And then it took me close to honestly two years to get back to a point where I could like sit or stand for longer than 15 minute intervals, like comfortably. But what I learned from that injury and has changed how I work and changed how I view my job is that it's okay to ask for help. And it is okay to set expectations for what you're capable of doing. If you set people's expectations, they won't then be disappointed, right? Or they'll know how to ask for what they need then to get a job done, right? Um, And so that was another like thing that helped me because, and I think it helped me grow into a more senior audio person was really understanding that like, I have to balance people's workloads. And I have to then ask for what I need to be able to get the job done, right? And that's okay. Like, it's okay to ask for more. It's okay to ask for help. It's Mm -hmm. and I think that's such a hard thing to swallow sometimes like no one likes asking for help, right? (laughs) No, no, we want to know we want to believe that we can take on everything that we commit to or that is asked of us. There's definitely kind of like a team dynamic, right? Where you want to help people Mm -hmm. when they give you work or they need you because of your expertise or they're overloaded or something like that. I agree with you, right? You have Mm -hmm. to be able to ask for help or be able to help clarify expectations, right? Like Mm -hmm. invisible boundaries don't help anybody, Mm -hmm. right? Invisible collision volumes only save the player from hurting (laughs) him or herself, right? But they don't help developers at all. I think communication, right? To your point of creating this culture where, hey, feel free to ask everything you need. Mm -hmm. 
and then be receptive to when I tell you what I can give and if I need help to give the rest, right? And let's be able to compromise. Let's be able to scope. Let's mm-hmm. be able to have a conversation around, hey, do we have an awesome in-source department of mercenaries that we can reach out to or can we contract or can we bring mm-hmm. an intern aboard or things like this, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that scoping conversation is so important and I think you just nailed it. And it's a hard thing to do, right? No one wants mm-hmm. to cut stuff. Every game I've been on, though, it's been a balance of having a conversation around how many people do we have? How much work is there based on estimates? The thing with scoping is you're never done right? Like you continually have to be scoping because estimates are just that. They're a best guess at how long something's going to take. And there's always these things that creep up. There's found work, right? There's the unknowns that creep in there, right? So then you have to go back and you have to have a whole other conversation around like, well, this thing ran over. So now we're over again. How do we remedy that? Like, Maybe it's worth it. Maybe then you out, you figure out more outsourcing or you figure out additional resources or you cut, right? But I think that job of scoping is just kind of never done and has to be a continual conversation because plans are plans and plans change. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> to go back to what we were talking about with the ingenuity or the innovation that comes out from small teams because they don't have the luxury of all the extra resources. It's so powerful to me that under those conditions are when you see kind of these super amazing things done in games where you would expect that the more people you have and the more Mm. resources that you have, innovation and ingenuity should be like kind of bleeding Mm -hmm. out of these massive teams. I mean, that's so fascinating. When I was at Microsoft, I got to work on a project where I truly got to see that like go wide model, like how far can you take it, right? Yeah. I worked on a Kinect Star Wars game where literally it was like that because we had so many different developers actually working on the project because the game had so many different modes. And so we had audio teams at every one of those developers. And it's just like, there is a cost to going wide, right? In a Mm. big team. If I hire someone, it's not my time plus that person's time. It's a little bit less of my time plus that person's time, right? Every time you add more people, the communication, the like ability to collaborate well becomes more complex. Totally doable, but like it's not a zero cost experience, right? I guess is what I'm saying. And so in audio, because we're at the tail end, there is a benefit to being able to go wide closer to the end. But I do think like, because it's that balancing act of efficiency versus like how wide you can go without it becoming more expensive, right? Yes. Smart choices. But like audio really benefits from going wide near the end just because we are at the end. And when things become available to us, like the games world loves to work in an agile manner, right? Mm -hmm. Like everybody loves working in agile, two week sprints, like pull stuff from the backlog. But like audio really needs in order to be able to build a schedule to understand more of a waterfall like method and approach, right? So it's always this balance of like, I love to be agile and I want to work in agile, but I also need to be able to build a schedule that hits a target date, right? And be confident that we're going to be able to land that. And so I like this combination approach of working in agile plus kind of waterfall. 
I got the chance to understand the breadth of all the games you've touched. Going back to Matrix Online, Fear, Condemned, Fable, Sunset Overdrive. I want to learn about all of them, right? But if I had to pick and choose, I want to know how was your time on Fable and working with Peter Molyneux, if at all? Yeah, I worked on Fable 2, Fable 3, and then Fable Journey very briefly. And in the time, I only met Peter Molyneux two times. He came to Microsoft in Redmond, Washington, and we had this trailer that we were going to use for like an E3 or something like that. Some big time show, right? You're showing the game. Yeah, some, some show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he came in and he had never seen the trailer before. There wasn't a plan. There wasn't a script for like what the VO on top of the performance was going to be. And he watched it one time, walked into the VO booth and perfectly narrated the entire experience in one take. Like, what? He, he's just very charismatic and he's very expressive. And it just really left a really positive impression on me of like, how charismatic like he rolled a natural 20 in that like you know like (laughs) it just he really impressed me and i loved working with the fable team like my time working with lionhead is what i look back on as probably one of the most positive experiences in my career they're just a delight they're very fun to work with it's such a creative project and it's a project that i left a full-time job to take a contract to work on because i loved fable so much It was my favorite game in college. It's the reason I bought an Xbox. And as a gay woman, being able to play a game that I could be who I wanted to be, I could have relationships with people in the game that I wanted to have relationships with. I could make good choices. I could make evil choices. Like a game that let me play how I wanted to play and be the person that I wanted to be was something that I think had been missing as a kid growing up in Texas, you know, as a, as a queer girl that I just really wanted in the games world. And so to be able to go work on a game like that meant a lot to me and was important. Yeah, that's powerful. I can easily recall I had my Xbox and all I had was all the Halos and Fable for sure. (laughs) But that's so beautiful, right? Because there's something that, that keeps coming up as I speak to more and more people is games can never do enough to let people be themselves, get away from judgment, be in a safe space that they control, that they can express or create or do whatever, right? And see the impacts to your choices, right? And people think that, oh yeah, you know, we've been there and done that. And and no, we haven't. There's so much more to push the envelope on and I love hearing what Fable created for you and drew you in and so much so to the point that you gave up a full-time gig to take a contract to be like I want to give back I want to create the same thing I had and push it for for other people Mm -hmm, totally yeah it was a really meaningful move in my career and it was easy too because one of the guys that i'd worked with at monolith christopher melroth he was at microsoft and so he was the one trying to be like i have a contract come work on fable and a he said fable and he had me but b (laughs) he was my mentor he's james ackley was the audio director at monolith at the time and i was just really grateful he brought me in as an intern i just felt really lucky that he took a chance on me and then i 
when I met Christopher, he kind of just started teaching me everything. This is how game development works. This is source control. Just teaching me like things that I didn't learn in school because there weren't really game development things in school when I was going. And I didn't know that's what I wanted to do, actually. Yeah, tell me more. I'm curious. Like, I always ask everybody, how did they venture into video game development? Because it's always a crazy story for everyone, like how they even fell into it and how they knew that it was even a possibility. Yeah, I mean, I think even like playing games my entire life, I never stopped to be like, oh, yeah, someone makes those sounds. You know, (laughs) (laughs) That's what I want to go do. It wasn't like that. And I kind of struggled knowing what I wanted to do when I was graduating high school because I thought I'd always known. And then like my last year, I kind of had this pivot of like, oh, no, that's not what I want to do. And what am I going to go do? And so I just started taking like random philosophy classes, ethics classes. Classes. My mom was really musical and I grew up in a musical household. And so I started taking some music theory classes and that kind of led me on a path of, oh, I want to go do music production. Like I'm never going to be a professional musician, but I want to help other people make their art. So I moved up to Seattle from Austin, Texas, and... These are like the two of the three biggest music audio cities, right? Like Seattle, what is it, like Nashville and Austin? Yeah, so I moved up to Seattle, go to college, and studied music production, and ended up with a teacher at the Evergreen State College, Peter Randlett, who was like, how would you feel about an internship at a game company? And I was like, mind blown. I was like, are you kidding? It felt so perfect. And I was like, how have I never thought of this? This is a perfect path for me. So this was just offered like, hey, you want to work at a game studio? Yeah, I was struggling to find an internship in the music world. I won't lie. That was kind of a pretty negative experience for me. And thus, I think I was his intern at the college and he saw that I was a hard worker and I think he believed in me. And he knows a lot of people in the Seattle games world because he's helped people come out of Evergreen State College and get jobs in the games world. And he knew the composer, Nathan Gregg at Monolith. And so I think he helped them agree that there was an internship. And it was lucky that when I started interning at Monolith, they were trying to ship three games in like one year. Wow. Yeah. We needed all the help we could get, right? And I was just so pumped to be there. Like it was an amazing experience to get to work with those guys there. Heck yeah. I'm curious if you can remember what it was like when you first got in and you started working on games. If you can recall one of the surprising moments right like oh i didn't know it would have been this because those are always fun to hear i don't think i knew anything (laughs) i think everything was like that when i joined monolith like one of the first tasks they gave me was we didn't have digital database software then for like looking up sound effects in like libraries and so it was literally a book that you would look up descriptions of sounds and go find the CD and then go rip the CD of the sound you want. You're like an audio phone book. Yeah, and so one (laughs) of the first things they gave me there was digitizing those CD libraries and starting to build a database out of it. And slowly they just started giving me more and more work. Like, here, help with animation tagging. And then eventually it was like, oh, let's test your sound design skills. Here's some sounds. Make me these sounds. And I was literally sharing a room with the composer. (laughs) Like, I was in his room while he was working and I was on headphones. And so Mm -hmm. I started helping with music implementation and fear. And I love fear. 
I love me some fear. Yeah, fear was fun. As an AI designer, I studied that game through and through and will quote their goal planner system all day, every day. Yeah, the AI felt smart, right? Oh, yeah. What scared oh, me the most wasn't actually Alma, the little girl, like jumping out at me. It was like the AI showing up in weird random spots because of how <laughs> smart they were and me not knowing it and like turning around and being like, oh, crap. <laughs> Yeah, they would know the nav mesh kind of, if the rooms are open enough, right? They yeah. kind of knew, okay, I can get to where the player is through this way. And and coordinate, right? Like our coordinate, in quotations. That game was fun. It was, so it was condemned. Like I loved getting mm. to work on, I mean, like horror, it feels like the bread and butter for sound design, right? Because sound becomes so important in the horror genre. And so I felt lucky because I felt like there was a, an already a, immediately built positive audio culture at the studio because of it, you know? You brought up some interesting things about the job, especially as you're kind of getting your feet underneath you, that I think might be a value to other aspiring audio developers coming in to help set expectations and, and, and things like this is what are things that you needed to know to do the job and what are things that you were able to pick up and what are some of the work that you expect of people coming in to do? The things that I already needed to know was some basis for you know, recording and capturing sounds and actually sound designing content. I felt like the rest of the game design stuff and how games work, I was able to pick up on the job. That was a very long time ago. Like the expectations are, I feel like very different <laughs> now than ah, they now than they were then, right? Because we didn't have college curriculums where you could learn this stuff. And maybe there was at the time I would have to go back and actually check. Like there's such a foundation for community indie built games now and mods and like being able to learn game engines like being able to download unreal and just mm. start learning blueprints or being able to download wise or fmod and get into building it. like how do you build interactive sound systems right i didn't have any of that when i was going yeah, to school I hear you. and so i had to learn all that on the job Right. I think my recommendation now would be very different because I think my expectation would be that people are trying to learn and get into those tools and understand how to build stuff a little bit more ahead of time. That's totally fair. Are your expectations then for anyone coming out of school or trying to get in the industry to be working in Unreal or Unity and if they're serious about sound to be familiar with WISE or FMOD or, or audio middleware like that? Mm -hmm. Yes, I'll say soft yes. My expectation is that I just want to hire someone who's extremely talented and great to work with. That's my goal is like I want a pleasant human being who is awesome every day and who brings a good attitude and like adds a positive experience to the culture and our team at the studio. And there's so much you can learn. Like there are so many hard skills that can be taught. But I do think that like when I look the at soft skills, not so much. Yeah, like I yeah, those soft skills are harder, right? Those are usually the things I'm looking for. And depending on the position, my expectation changes based on what I would expect out of a senior, what I, what I would expect out of mm -hmm. a principal, what would I expect out of an associate? My expectations really change for those positions and even their quality of their sound design. And, and I feel like what I've 
found over the years is that the expectations of how good it, someone is as a sound designer has just gotten like narrower and narrower and narrower. We expect juniors to be phenomenal sound designers, <laughs> right? And some of the schools and even some people just doing it on their own are able to get to a really high level of skill. But I'm trying to push for creating a little more dynamics between our entry-level positions and our senior positions, right? I think it's healthy. And, like, it's healthy to have, like, that room for growth, right? And so I would like to see us do that a little bit more. But do I want a totally kick-ass sound designer to come in and walk through my door no matter what position they're in? Sure, yes. I will never say no, right? But I guess my point is all those things that like you can get ahead of and the technical implementation, the things we're talking about, like being in unreal or being in unity and being in wise or F mod, like all those things are just so readily available. And so it's easier, I think, to learn them without needing to ask someone questions. But I think also finding a community to be a part of, like learning from people, reaching out to people, finding a mentor and someone who can help like shepherd your growth and who can help coach, right? I had a wonderful mentor and I think that's one of the best things that ever happened for my career. Let's shout them out, right? In the in the off chance that they listen to this episode because they see your name attached to it. Yeah, Christopher Melroth, you were an amazing coach and an amazing manager and an amazing peer and now an amazing friend. Boom. Um, very great. Shout to Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, Kristen, you're like at the top of your game. I don't know where you go after being director. And I want to know what does it entail getting to be a director on a team, you know, let alone audio director, what changes or what, what are the, the expectations on yourself now, now that you're a audio director? That's such a hard question. I could answer that easier, but my inferiority complex is taking over. Like, what does it take to grow into being a director? I think the number one thing I've learned is it's okay to not have all the answers. And that part of game development is not being afraid to fail and being willing to experiment and take a shot and then evaluate things and then tear them down and rebuild them and do that over and over again until you figure out what works about it, you know? So like for me, my evolution has been becoming comfortable with failure and trying to just help and be a helpful teammate. And learning how to not take work and feedback personally. And so you can be a good collaborator. Yes. Right? And as a director, learning how to coach and shepherd that in others. And I say coach really deliberately because I think being a good director or being a good manager isn't about overmanaging and isn't it about dictating how things need to get done. I think Mm -hmm. it's about like helping to ask the right questions to help people solve their own problems, right? Absolutely. Yeah, to help someone work out their train of thought Mm -hmm. more often than not, right? Like everybody, you know, they're there because they have a great sense and ability to learn and some sort of experience or something meaty that they're bringing to the team, right? And and a lot of times, right, we kind of get in our own way. So having somebody you can lean on as your, your lead, your director, the person that you can go to for help, 
right? I, I think that's kind of an, an implication of being a director or a lead is that people believe that, okay, I'm stuck. This person will have the answer or be able to guide me. That's the magic, though. I might not. But you can help kind of work through the thought process, right? Yeah. Being a lead or being a director, what I've always tried to achieve out of that is understanding to build strong teams that like succeed and fail together. We are yeah. a team and as a director or as a manager, as a lead, like I care about who I'm working with. I care about their state of mind. I care about the project. I care about how we're all working together. And I think that's the difference. I used to not care or think about those things, but like now I care about building a positive working environment. I care about building a team that isn't toxic I care about trying to build equitable game development practices. I spend more time and I spend more of my brain energy, if you will, mm -hmm. <laughs> trying to care about those things. Yeah, I think that hits it on the head for what anyone would hope out of their director team or the D team of that. Yeah, you guys are carrying a lot more on your shoulders beyond the project and even beyond the team. I think first and foremost, a team for sure. And the project is not too far away. But what you're telling me is, if I'm hearing it correctly, is that you have the broad vision of the, the studio moving forward, right? You're, you're kind of thinking about the way you're bringing in people, the way you're grooming the people that are there, the way you're uh, shepherding the culture and creating this sense of like, we don't have to have the answers, but let's have fun figuring out what we know, what we don't know, and getting to some type of next step. Totally. I will also say the more senior I've become in my career, the worse my inferiority complex has gotten. <laughs> and oh, no. Yeah, I am one of those. I've really struggled with a pretty gnarly inferiority complex. But I feel like the most important thing that has happened is that I've tried to use that to fuel my growth and mm -hmm. my ability to learn. And as long as I don't let it paralyze me. Yes, you know. don't let it paralyze you. Yeah. In the virtual therapy couch <laughs> session, <laughs> I want to share with you as well my imposter syndrome that tends to come anytime I've been given a new title, right? Or some mm -hmm. type of promotion, right? That I put these expectations or weight on it that, okay, now all of a sudden from one day to the next, because there's this senior in front of my title or lead in front of my title, I have to then have a whole plus 10 stat to my design ability or my output. Yeah, I, I'm with you there, right? Like, yeah. oh my gosh, how did I get here? Now I have to deliver all these things, right? And like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm a fraud. <laughs> I have this way of evaluating that my, my friend and I used to talk about all the time at Microsoft of how I evaluate where I am in a particular role that I'm in. And it's that when you first take a job, you don't know that you don't know, right? And then you know that you don't know because you start discovering all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then the next step is you don't know that you actually know Somewhere along the way, you've actually learned how to do all these things, but you haven't like learned how to recognize that in yourself yet. And then the last one is like, you know that you know. And so when you know that you know, uh -huh. then like you tend to start the process all over again by taking a, a different title or a different job, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, that helps put it into such clear perspective for me, right? It's like when you know you don't know. Mm-hmm. That's scary. That is that first day of the new job or the new role or the realization, right? That is like, oh crap. And to your point, if you let it, it can definitely paralyze you. But if you grab it by the horns and ride that mofo, it can definitely fuel you and propel you through that journey of however long to learn and ask questions and try and fail and teach and iterate and get to that to that yeah. step. Hey, I know more of the thing I didn't know, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of build some momentum there. Well, and I feel like that keeps life interesting. Keeps Heck my career yes. interesting. Like that's how I want all my pursuits to be, right? Like evolving and growing as a person. And I think like that growth and evolution is also important. Like why work-life balance is important because I Mm -hmm. need to be able to grow and evolve as a person in my family life and in my relationships with all kinds of different people, not just at, at work. Right. And I need to have outside interests because that makes me more fun to be around when I'm at work because like I have other interests and things to talk about. Right. Like Like magic, the gathering (laughs) to connect with your wife. Yeah. So as an avid gamer, you know, not just a game developer, but a gamer and a big appreciator of everything that goes into making an awesome game. I would like to ask you, for someone who wants to get a better understanding of awesome game audio, what is a game that you look towards or cites or have studied as like a great bar or trend or like setter of like, yo, this game did it this way and it was awesome kind mm-hmm. of thing in the, in the realm of like, you know, interactive video game audio and feel free to, to use a game you've worked on. Right. Yeah. That way, I would never do that, but <laughs> <laughs> after all these inferiority companies, yeah. um, no, I mean, the, the, I will answer that, but I think the real, like the inferiority complex thing is really like a game is never done. You just put mm-hmm. it down and ship it. Right. Like that's how I view my work. It's never going to be as good as I, want it to be but i'm gonna be getting better and when i look at stuff i used to make and stuff i've made up against stuff i've made now i've grown so much right and and i think it's important to stop and look at that growth and appreciate it and put value into it you know rather than focusing on well it's not as good as this other thing or it's Mm -hmm. now with that said i of course have many amazing games that i think sound absolutely phenomenal that have inspired me and they've evolved too right like i have older classic games that i remember making such an imprint on me like i remember playing bioshock and and being like this game sounds phenomenal just the like the mood they set with the musical choices they decided to use inside the world and they just did a phenomenal job like everything about it and then i remember when like the first assassin's creed came out and i was Mm. like oh my gosh like traversing around a world and climbing buildings has never sounded so good right And like when I was working on traversal games, when I had to make Sunset, like I went back and referenced all these games, like the remake of Tomb Raider when they rebooted it, right? That game sounds phenomenal. There's a lot of really amazing sounding games. All the Naughty Dog games, right? If you had to pick one over the other, right? Like, uh, you know, it's, it's, you can always kind of look, look to the latest, but 
and and to your point of like horror yeah uh but I, i'm curious like is it an uncharted or is it a last of us i don't know that i could choose right they both fair they both yeah. do things beautifully like Cause they're, they're different genres yeah yeah They've done such an amazing job building up their systems and dialing them in over the years that like they've just been able to elevate and elevate and elevate how those games sound. Mm-hmm. Whereas I look at like, oh, someone like jumping onto a project for a first time and then having to establish all these systems, right? And figure out yeah. how to like my most recent is like I'm really loving Ghost of the Tsushima. Um, <gasps> Ooh, dude, yeah, I can talk to you forever about ghost of tsushima that's the last game i played before hades and i i had to platinum trophy that sucker well that game sounds so unique when i'm like oh this, this is a, a game it's a new ip like you're having to design a style like what is the sound of this game and what encompasses making up the sound of this game when i look at moss and what steven did I could point to certain things that built up and made up the sound of Moss. And I think with any new game IP, you're having to think about what that is and figure it out. I appreciate that challenge. Not just going from maybe a sequel or maybe a sequel on a completely different tool set, but definitely kind of like new team and new IP, right? Like kind of clean slate and getting a chance to define something and it, it turning out like that is commendable. Don't get me wrong. I would love to go work on any of those sequels that Naughty Dog is putting out. No, um, <laughs> no, I say that. I love my team. I would never, but I think I say that because I love and appreciate the amount of polish that they've been able to build mm-hmm. into how their games sound because of the evolution of the introduction of new systems at a time. You're not having to build an entire game worth of systems. You're getting to like pick and choose the new things that you're going to focus on to elevate and tune and polish. And you're, you're going to get to evolve the systems that have already pre-existed. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. There's something really beautiful about getting to craft that way and, just keep making the sound of your game better. And like, that's Mm -hmm. a challenge unto itself. Like, how do you keep one upping yourself, you know, but they they keep doing it. Like they keep making it amazing. And I just think it's a different challenge, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. And I just think there's something to be said for having to build all the systems and having to craft and build a sound style and define that, because I actually think that's a really challenging thing to do. Right. And then to keep it consistent. Yeah, because people interpret things differently, right? The longer it kind of goes, goes out. Kristen, let me tell you this morning over brunch with my wife, we were at Cactus in South Lake Union. I told her I was sitting down with you and talking about audio design and if she had anything on her mind about what that entails. And just so for some additional context, so you know where she's coming from, Catherine, who does the intro for the show, has much higher hearing fidelity than me. And is much more sensitive to anything that sounds out of the normal against the visuals and or the narrative. For example, when I was playing Hades the other day and I get to the boss, I think it was the Hydra, this heavy metal track comes on and I'm just like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's go. Let's bring it on. Right. It sets the mood perfectly. I'm ready for this boss fight. And her first comment to me is, why is that playing when I'm in a Greek myth setting? And she can't get past that. So with that in mind, 
She was bringing up how she's played Neverwinter Nights and NPCs would repeat their lines of dialogue or reactions. Or when she was watching me play that last God of War and I would trigger something like Atreus's attacks. And over the course of a play session, you know, where this thing would happen hundreds of times, she would catch that repetition and she'd get fatigued at what she'd hear. So she wanted me to ask you who's responsible here. Can she go to yell at the narrative team for not having written more variation or the systems design team for not better balancing what's being played or you guys, the audio people? I'd love your perspective on that. I think that is an interesting question, right? Because I think there is a, well, the music in Hades is a style choice, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, And I'm loving Hades, by the way. It's such a fun game. Um, I'm right there with you. Yeah. One of these days I will beat Hades, but uh, (laughs) until then. (laughs) You know, it's so interesting because like in the past, like when I started in my career, I felt like we were struggling up against limitations and constraints of what we could do. We only had so much memory and we had to pick and choose what we were going to use, right? And so I think games back then were more repetitive by the sheer fact that we didn't have the space to do more, right? Cartridges before DVDs. Yeah, these days we have way more resources to work with. But I still think there's a conversation to be had around, is something repetitive because it is iconic? Yeah, Um, that's a great point. And so, like, if it's dialogue barks and it's not meant to, you know, be really a critical moment or super important, I would say, yeah, maybe we could make that less repetitive, right? If it's a moment that is meant to have a really iconic sound and a really important style and it's, it's there to provide really important gameplay feedback... Then I ask, like, is it more important to have more variety and variation, or is it more important that it sounds iconic and stands out and is identifiable, right? I like the I like the the spectrum on that, and I'll be happy to take that back to her. Something came to mind, and I'm gonna throw this at you to see if he, if it even rings a bell. But I just want to yell, Chicken Chaser! Hello, Chicken Chaser! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there were an interesting amount of chickens in Fable. Yeah, yeah. Which would trigger, which would turn the system on to be like, hey, you're always chasing chickens. Therefore, mm-hmm. whenever you enter the town, that's going to be your nickname. Yeah. We had this mission in Fable Three where you had to go collect chickens that had like escaped from this guy's farm or something. And uh-huh. as you collected them, they started balking a song. Um, oh. And as you got more and more, they were like, they were balking, like it ran through the music system. It was pretty amazing. I highly recommend everybody track it down. <laughs> okay, Fable 3, uh, there's a mission where you're collecting chicken for so, so, so that escapes somebody's chicken coop. Yeah, and they like, they're balking a song together as they're walking behind you as you take them back to the farm. Yeah. Do you have insight on how that came to be? Because it seems very intentional and deliberate that this was kind of like created. I actually think it was my coworker, Ellen Lurie, that might have come up with that. I could be wrong on that, but I kind of feel like she drove that a little bit. And it was so amazing. Like it worked out so well. There's definitely opportunity in what we do to kind of bring a little random magic or ideas, right? That are like, definitely, I, I would bet money that that was not in the scope or planned for for that you know it's interesting when we talk about like scope 
and scope increases and why they happen. It's like these things that people get excited about, right? Yes. That like sneak in that weren't necessarily initially on the schedule maybe. And that like impact people from where you are all the way down the chain, right? It's important to be able to plan for knowing that there are going to be these amazing things that creep in that like are really amazing things that should stick around and they should be prioritized because they add such like delight to the experience or make it better, right? Yeah, absolutely. In a creative environment, it is always to our folly that producers do their best to be like, okay, this is how much time we have and we're going to pack the schedule and, you know, Sure, we'll leave a 10, 15, 20% buffer for the what ifs. But I guarantee you that they always dip into that what if bucket and take away more time, right? And so then when the creatives come out with these like passionate ideas, oh, we don't have time, right? But, but you know, we make it happen somehow. The best producers I've worked with are also extremely creative in how they work with people, you know? Well, I did marry a producer so I'm, I'm biased towards uh, but let's call it out no i do think producers get a bad rap i think that the best producers i've worked with are producers that like understand and and try and understand the game development process and the creative process and and shepherd it and part of that is just making sure the right people are talking about the right things and like decisions are getting made right? No one's dictating to anyone like what has to happen. But as a team, you're getting aligned yeah. around what you want to have happen by having everybody have conversations and like having agreements about how you all work together. Sometimes in game development, we don't always agree with the things that we're going to do, right? Or decisions mm -hmm. that get made. And that's totally okay. Yeah, it's a business. But it's about aligning the team around what is going to happen and having a good process for how you make those decisions that feels good as a team, you know? Mm -hmm. And that comes with the agreements of how everybody works together. And so I just really care about that because I think it creates either a really positive collaborative culture or it creates a really negative experience for people where maybe they feel like decisions are getting dictated, right? Opposed to having a holistic team experience for how you make decisions and align around ideas and choose what you're going to do for your project. Yeah, that, that makes such a difference to team morale. And the quality of the end product, for sure. As we talk about this, I definitely recall strategic meetings that I've had with teammates of all the disciplines when we're really excited about something. Essentially, it becomes a strategic meeting for what are we going to tell our exec producer to make sure that he or she gives this a chance. And to be fair, to the credit of that said producer, it was always a, I'm not sure, but let's try it, right? And that's the best thing you can hear. Yeah, I like trying stuff. <laughs> Amen. I like trying stuff. Kristen, I think we can keep going forever. I'm really having a blast. I want to be respectful of your time. A small tradition we have here on the show is that if you've had a good time falling out of the play area, if you have anybody that you would feel comfortable nominating to fall behind you. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about her enough. I feel like I got to nominate my wife. Woo! So, Jesse Quinn on the hook. Jesse Quinn on the hook. Sign and sealed. She will be getting an invitation. We'll see if she accepts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's busy, like, running her own business in a startup. So, I think she'll be fascinating. 
to listen. Yeah, she would definitely be the first producer I, that have come on the show. And, and I think that there's a big group of people that are like are super interested to see how the gears work in that mind. Mm-hmm. And now CEO. So, ooh, yeah, yeah you're, you're you're balancing two things. Yeah, startup life. You know, she's gotten it figured out because I mean, she worked at a lot of different companies. She was at Bungie. She's been at Microsoft. She went to HBO for a while working on their interactive team doing VR. And now she started her own company for the past couple of years doing AR, AR game experiences. So Awesome. I am still looking forward to that horizon of AR coming into the mainstream, right? I've seen it at theme parks and things like this, but I want it on me in my hand in my glasses or in my car or something like that. I look forward to hearing where people are taking this. It's always exciting to see new gaming technology and like what we end up doing with it. That's so cool that you're kind of on the cutting edge on the VR side and then Jesse is on the cutting edge on the AR side. So you guys got the future well in the palm of your hands. <laughs> yes, I, I, hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, like it's been a real pleasure. So I really appreciate you inviting me on and always getting to chat about games is fun. So plus I'm a fan. I loved Red Dead Redemption. I love a lot of the stuff you've worked on. So huge call out to you. Thank you. Thank you. I was waiting for you to drop one of the Rockstar games and you're kind of calling out good audio and music and composition. I should have. And now I feel bad. Like I played Red Dead. I'm just jabbing. No, but I played that game so much just listening to their horses and like the environmental weather changes they were doing. Good catch. I just, I loved... That game just sucked me in so much, and I literally just had so much joy running around on my horse and just experiencing the world around me. And it did. It sounded great. Shout out to the Rockstar audio team. Love, love, love those guys for sure. Kristen, thank you so much. You have the benefit of being the first audio developer on the show. So I'm going to profess how important your role is to developers, let alone to the final product, because easily 50-60% of our time in development, we're essentially on mute in the world. And as soon as there's a sign of life in acoustic form, the job just gets so much more badass. So thank you for what you do. And thank you for coming on the show. I look forward to extending the invitation to Jesse and getting how awesome you are from her perspective. And we'll catch you again. Uh, just so you know, you have a lifetime pass to come on the show. And uh, we'll definitely have to talk again in the future. That sounds awesome. Thanks so much. There were some really great tips for preserving your team's dynamic while we all work from home. Who knows how long this pandemic is going to keep running. And I'll take any help or tips I can get to build that important camaraderie when we're all disconnected like this. I love hearing how the industry connected her with her wife through the shared interest of just what it is being women in games who also happen to enjoy Magic the Gathering. It's so cool when we can see the layers of our colleagues and friends that beyond just what we do in game development. Essentially, this industry and what we do is all about adapting and evolving with the times. Over the years, consoles will come and go, technologies will change and evolve, engines will continue to iterate. 
there will always be something new to learn or adjust to as we jump around different teams and different types of projects. Who knows where we'll get thrown into next? And so what I continue to hear is how important it is to be adaptable and flexible and always bring a curious mindset, right? That same curiosity when we were all young children playing games, not knowing what we were getting ourselves into, being able to bring that to our work. You can see that how now that she's a part of Polyarch, she's done a ton of growing and learning how to carefully manage and spend her resources for the greatest benefit of the game. That's a vital muscle for us all to develop, no matter the size of our team and budget. I have to echo when she said that her work-life balance is her responsibility. Let's take a second and repeat that. Our work-life balance is our responsibility. My work-life balance is my responsibility. Amen. Let that sink in. I've certainly looked at previous employers and blamed them for my life taking a hit, my relationship suffering, my health suffering. You know, whenever we were finishing a game or approaching a tight deadline. But eventually over time, you learn that it's all on you. It's exactly what Kristen is talking about here. It's up to us to make life a priority and create those boundaries and block out your calendar and be transparent with your team over the things you need to bring your best self to work, whatever that may be, right? Hey, I need more sleep. I need time to exercise over lunch. I need to spend time with my loved ones. I got to take them to school. I got to help them with homework. I need personal game time. All of that is part for the course to factor in when you're negotiating your contract, when you're working out your schedules with your producers or your team and establishing those time commitments with your team, especially now that we're working from home. Just be transparent and bring these needs to your manager and let them know when you will be available and when you won't be available. So everybody can make sure that everybody on the team is committing the same amount of time and pulling their weight. Because rest assured, if you don't, no one else will. I'm really benefiting from this podcast in the ways that it's connecting me with people that I haven't even worked with yet and helping me get a wider perspective on what goes on at other studios and different teams. And better yet to confirm the common ground of what we love, what we do, what we want in making the best experience possible and just be better and being able to work with awesome people. I love this industry and it's home. I hope this podcast helps give back to it in a small way. Kind of like, you know, when you go to a dinner party empty handed and you offer to do the dishes. It's one of my go to's. I got some personal news I want to share with you. I'll be presenting at GDC 2021 for the first time ever as a moderator for a tech design panel called Avoid an Identity Crisis as a Technical Designer. A personal highlight for this year, 2021, has been launching this podcast and being able to reach out to my network and highlight you all, the game developers, and apply all the things I've learned about inclusion and fostering diversity. But speaking at GDC is a close second, not only because it's a topic near and dear to my heart, where I'll be able to talk with my peers, I'll be it virtually due to the pandemic, but I'll be able to do it alongside former colleagues who I've respected and admired and have learned so much from in this industry. I honestly felt like I was playing Nick Fury's role and assembling my own Avengers or playing Bruce Wayne and assembling the Justice League. It's scheduled for the week of July the 19th through the 23rd. I'll throw a link for more information in the show notes. 
feel free to register and check it out. I suspect it'll make its way to the vault eventually. On the next episode of Out of Play Area, debuting on Monday, May the 24th, we talk game development with Juan Vaca, a narrative designer at Netflix, who's also done narrative design for Telltale Games in San Francisco on Batman. And he's also been a producer for other hit titles like Wolf Among Us, The Walking Dead, and Tales from the Queer We even talk about what it means to him to have co-founded the Latinx and gaming organization which prominently features our voices y nuestro talento en la industria de videojuegos. Mi gente, make sure to tune in for that one. There's going to be something for everyone. Thank you for listening. If you found this enlightening and enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate your support in following the podcast if you listen on Spotify or leaving a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts or telling and sending a link to a fellow developer about the show. Every bit helps get this out there and raise awareness. I'm always curious on where you found out about this show so I know which outlets to keep putting posts out on. If you have any thoughts, comments, questions for me or a guest, you can find many ways to get in touch on our website at outofplayarea.com. There you can book my calendar to meet up and discuss coming on and getting interviewed as a guest of our show as well. Please make sure you get approval from your studio, PR, or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area releases new episodes every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the major players. Please make sure to follow us so you see what developer falls out of Play Area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. We out! <laughs>